Hello, fellow time travelers. I am Sasha from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I am Skip from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I'm Brooke. We're the Fiction Paradox, the only podcast dedicated to the BBC Books 8th Doctor Adventures in the whole world that we know of. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy, Enjoy your, your travels. travels. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Happy listening. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, darlings. I'm Katie Manning, and I play Joe Grant and Joe Grant Jones in Doctor Who, <laughs> and Iris Wildtime. Hello, lovies. <laughs> and you're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, darlings. Bye bye. <laughs> Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the brainy task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. That's probably one of the first adjectives we've had that actually describes us for the first time. <laughs> My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally brainy three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, and that would be me... There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we welcome back our resident expert on all things involving brains in jars, the glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Greetings. Well, today it's Valentine's in jars because we're actually recording this on Valentine's Day, which is appropriate since brains, hearts, you know. Kind of. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, though that gets harder to imagine by the day, <laughs> please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. 
Since we know you have so many of those, you have a disused power station on an obscure alien planet to store them all. <laughs> Boy, that was a long walk for a short drink of water. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the ritual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collective Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sonnall, Dave Davis, and Guy Lambert. Thank you all. Thanks, thank y'all. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find them there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with the penultimate story of Tom Baker's second season with our discussion of Terrence Dick's novelization of Robert Holmes' rewrite of Terrence Dick's script, The Brain of Morbius. <laughs> Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Robin Bland, that aired from 1376 to 12476, published by Target Books in June of 1977. As of this recording in February of 2021, this title is currently out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 140 pages. I obviously have some explaining to do on this <laughs> one. Yes. Well, here's how it goes. Robert Holmes asked former script editor Terrence Dix to contribute a script for Tom Baker's second season, after doing Baker's introductory story, Robot. Since Philip Hinchcliffe, the producer, wanted to do a story involving robots, Dick's original brief was to update Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with the story of a robot trying to rescue his master, the intergalactic criminal Morbius, by constructing a new body for him. But since the robot lacks any aesthetic sense... It creates a body from the corpses of various aliens, not realizing the horrific mess that it's made. Dix seems to have lifted the name Morbius from Forbidden Planet, which had already been adapted by the production team during the season as Planet of Evil. And he also used elements of his own stage play, which we've never talked about, Doctor Who and the Daleks in The Seven Keys to Doomsday. That's the full title. Oh as well as basing the sisterhood on characters from H. Ryder Haggard's novel She. It was also to be the very first completely studio-bound story to be taped, owing to budgetary concerns. There were no filmed inserts, no location work, nothing in a film studio, nothing but what they could do in the studio on video. Given Dick's former experience as a script editor, if he couldn't pull that off, no one could. Unfortunately, as his script started coming in, Hinchcliffe and Holmes realized that the story was drifting away from the gothic horror vibe they were aiming for in this season, and more importantly, there was just no way to realize that robot and still stay within their budget. Dix had just come back from vacation, and since there was little time to restructure the scripts before production started, he gave Holmes carte blanche to rewrite them as he needed. And boy, howdy did he rewrite them as he needed. <laughs> Holmes replaced the robot with Solon and Kondo, and made a major change to the mind-bending duel between Morbius and the Doctor that has resonated to this very day. Mm -hmm. It appears the story always had the Time Lords involved, so that's not the change he made. Holmes decided that, in addition to the three known faces of the Doctor that would appear during that duel, there would be further faces revealed indicating that the Doctor had had several incarnations before the William Hartnell one, hence Morbius's line, How Long Have You Lived?, taking on even more significance. 
These were photos of members of the production team, namely Holmes and Hinchcliffe themselves. Production unit manager George Galacio, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, production assistant Graham Harper, who would later go on to direct episodes in both the classic and the new series, director Christopher Barry, production assistant Christopher Baker, who oddly enough had no Doctor Who credits to his name, and even the writer and director of the next story in production order, Robert Banks Stewart and Douglas Canfield. For those of you counting at home, that's eight extra faces, twice as many as the Doctor had had up to that point. And yes, both Holmes and Hitchcliffe confirmed in interviews that they intended these to be past incarnations of the Doctor. Now, to paraphrase Douglas Adams in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, this made a lot of people very angry and was widely regarded as a bad move. The person most displeased with the extensive changes was Terrence Dix himself. He understood why the changes had to be made so that the story could be produced, but he asked Holmes to take his name off the script, since it was more Holmes's script than his own, and replace it with some quote-unquote bland pseudonym. He ended up being somewhat grudgingly amused, therefore, when he discovered that the pseudonym Holmes came up with was Robin Bland. Yeah, so he asked him to come up with a Bland pseudonym, and the pseudonym was Uh... Robin Bland. (laughs) This scene has been controversial among fans for decades, mainly down to the fact that fans mostly consider anything on screen as canon, which means there had to be some explanation for those extra faces, and later stories would establish a 13-regeneration limit for any Time Lord. Actually, it's a 12-regeneration limit. They have 13 bodies. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to 2020, in which a story establishes otherwise. I don't Mm -hmm. want to go into details because (laughs) uh, one of our panelists at least may not know about this yet, but regular listeners will know exactly what I'm talking (laughs) about. As the solution to the controversy has turned out to be even more controversial than the original controversy. Yep. (laughs) Yes, it has. Amazingly, there has been a recent announcement about a feature-length web film in production called The Timeless Doctors, which will feature the three surviving faces from that sequence. So that'll be interesting. Okay. Yeah. And speaking of controversy, while this isn't the first story to get Doctor Who in trouble for its levels of violence, it's one of the most famous examples. The National Viewers and Listeners Association, a family values type group led by a woman named Mary Whitehouse, condemned the story with Whitehouse in particular saying it, quote, contained some of the sickest and most horrific material ever seen on children's television. Unquote. <laughs> okay, God. Mary. Yes. Sadly, yeah, you might as well call her Karen. Sadly, this won't be the last time we hear about Mary Whitehouse objecting to the show, though she herself is no longer with us to do so, having died on the very day of the show's 38th anniversary in 2001. I remember being at Chicago TARDIS that weekend, and people were actually celebrating it, which God. is kind of mean-spirited, <laughs> but there you go. 
I was getting ready to make a joke about how Mary probably could have used a good pillaging, and then I was like, oh, never mind. Yeah, <laughs> we pretty much did it for you And people already. laughed at it, so never Yes, we mind. did. Well, just ironic that she died on the anniversary of the very show that she tried to get taken off the air. <laughs> it, it super is. Yes. Those complaints, though, that she made will have effects on the show's production further down the line, and as we get to them, we'll talk about them. And that leads us to four quite notable things about this story. For one thing, Tom Baker almost got set on fire during the filming of it. Oh my god. The actress playing Marin saw the flames that were surrounding him when he's being burnt at the stake by the Sisterhood were actually going too high, and she shouted for him to jump. And if he hadn't jumped, he would have been burnt. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths. For another, it's one of the few stories with the novelization translated into French. In fact, I have a very nice copy of that. It also was the second Doctor Who story to ever be released on VHS in 1984. But the BBC, concerned about those complaints about violence from Mary Whitehouse, severely edited the story from its original running time of roughly 100 minutes to just less than an hour. To make hmm. it kid-friendly. What the hell did they cut out? They cut out everything. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It is very difficult to watch that version of the story. Here in the States, it was even released under the Playhouse label of CBS Fox, back when they had a Playhouse label just for uh-huh. kids' television. It was yeah. the only Doctor Who story to get released under that. The fully unedited version, with a complete sound effects and music track on episode one, something that some of us here in the States didn't get for a very long time, myself included, was finally released in 1990. And finally, this was the second and last of two of Dick's own novelizations that he would later extensively rewrite for an even younger audience in 1980 under the title Junior Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius. (laughs) Our Patreon and the host of the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, Larry Van Mersbergen, has made an extended loan to me of both this book and Junior Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, and we will eventually do a special episode on both of these, just as soon as I can figure out a way to scan the pages for PDFs without breaking the spines. These books are very rare and are pretty expensive these days, and they also break like class. It's terrible. So thank you, Larry, for that extended loan. I will get them back to you in the condition that they came to be in as soon as I can. <laughs> so uh, let's do a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? I just realized I haven't done one of these in a while, so I should probably put myself on the chopping block as it were (laughs) yeah because i'd lose my head for it yes why do so many spaceships crash land on karn a bleak lonely and seemingly deserted planet are they doomed by the mysterious powers of the strange black-robed sisterhood jealously guarding their secret of eternal life or does the mad dr solon for some evil purpose of his own, need the bodies of the victims, and more especially, the body of Doctor Who. Da, 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 da. <laughs> exactly. 
I like how this one answers its own question. It's like, why did things crash here? It's like, oh, the sisterhood and Dr. Solon. And it's going to need the doctor. I'm like, oh, well, I, I guess that that is why they yeah. are crashing. Exactly. <laughs> All of the plot points taken into account. Pretty self-evident. Yeah, exactly. So first impressions. Uh, Jenny, what was your first impression when you got the PDF for this one? Oh, gosh. Well, I was so pleased that I did get to read this because I really like this. I think this is my favorite of of the, the books that I, I have read. Um, mm. And I've read a few of them now. Um, I got to gotta really hand it to, to Dix for this one. Um, <laughs> hand to Dix. No, that this man knows how to write. Like he, he just knows how to write. There's so many smart choices to be made here and not very many things that I could uh, complain about. So I'm excited to be very positive this, this episode. Okay. Terrific. Uh, Dalton, what was your first impression? Looking at the cover, <laughs> that is not a very flattering picture. No. <laughs> of Tom Baker. Not it's kind all. of scary. I didn't really know what to expect out of this, though. Brain of Morbius, it, it does bring up uh, kind of visions of Metroid for me with the mother <laughs> brain and just kind of the, the typical uh, science fiction-y brain in a jar imagery. So I guess that kind of fit. And yeah, I, I agree with Jenny. This one is is probably one of my favorites that we've read. And I've read mm. the lion's share of the ones we've done for the podcast. I really enjoyed this. I think I think that this is definitely one of Terrence Dick's good novelizations, one that he cared about, even if it was a script that got totally butchered in production. Mm. Um, it definitely felt like uh, this one was just a lot of fun. Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from, and we've said this before, that whenever Terrence Dix is adapting a Robert Holmes script... Because it mm -hmm. technically is a Robert Holmes script. It's yeah. not Terrence Dick's <laughs> script anymore. When, even when he's adapting a Robert Holmes script that is a revamp of his own, he takes special care with it. Now, there have been some people who have said, well, who asked him while he was still alive, because obviously you wouldn't ask him while he was dead. That's a stupid thing to say. They asked him, why didn't you adapt the story that you originally submitted for the production team and he said that's not my job my job is to render the stories as they appeared on screen mm -hmm. this is the story that appeared on screen and my name wasn't attached to it robin bland's name was attached to it <laughs> so i novelized the script written by robin bland which was more robert holmes than terrence dick's script so you both liked it well let's talk about this then what <laughs> What specific things did you like most about this? Uh, first of all, I really enjoyed Sarah mm. in this one. Even being blinded, she just made things happen. She definitely didn't give up. She didn't faint. <laughs> <laughs> there was some screaming, which is probably uh, warranted, given the fact that there's a butchered body <laughs> on, on a bed. But yeah, I think, I think Sarah is really strong in this book. Yeah, it's a very good Sarah story, despite the fact that it seems to put her in a damsel in distress position, which is something that Terrence Dix liked to do with the female companions, because he felt that was essentially their role in the show. But she fought against that. 
Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. She actually is a prime mover, as you said, as, of a lot of the plot. If she hadn't realized that she didn't like the wine that someone was serving, then she wouldn't be awake to help the doctor out. And even mm-hmm. when she's blinded, she goes on this terrifying trek over a planet that she has never seen before except for once and trying to find him again and has many brave moments like that so yeah yeah i too was um totally enamored of sarah in this story she kind of displays that curiosity in the very first scene that the doctor doesn't have and she's like well i'm just gonna go off on my own bye Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm like wow that's pretty amazing yeah she gets blinded she blindly assists a surgeon while he's doing surgery (laughs) kind of amazing (laughs) giving her major props to that and i really liked this line from her on my pdf page 60 where sarah is wondering you know what she can can do uh she said after all what could she do blind and helpless but to look at it another way it was pretty clear what she couldn't do she couldn't stay in the castle waiting meekly to be found and killed and she couldn't let the doctor walk into a trap without making some attempt however futile to find him and warn him of his danger so i really liked that she was like oh well here's all the things that i refuse to let happen so i have to try and Mm -hmm. I just thought that was a a lovely kind of moment, like what she could and couldn't do. Yeah, they make very good use of her in the script, um, in the way that you would expect a companion to actually add to the story rather than just being there to be rescued or to scream or what have you, because there's surprisingly very little of that, as it turns out. (laughs) And definitely no feigning, so Dave Davis will be uh, happy about that. He doesn't have to make any additions to his list there. And their relationship has developed quite nicely, too, especially in that first chapter, because the Doctor knows that he's been hijacked by the Time Lords, again, to do dirty work for them, because Mm -hmm. they always do this, to the point that one of my favorite lines in that first chapter is, he raised his fist to the sky and shook a defiant fist. A very large raindrop came down and hit him in the eye. Yes. (laughs) And he is just being completely childish, but is already getting over that snit when he hears Sarah scream for a very good reason, because she finds the mud. Oh, by the way, Dalton, you would know about this. Um, You remember when we read uh, Doctor Who and the Mutants Uh and how the creatures on that planet were called mutts? Uh On screen, the alien, uh, Kriz, who we get that lovely backstory for at the very beginning. Oh, God, we need to talk about that, too. Is called a mutt. The Doctor refers to him as a mutt because it's the same costume. Yeah. I don't think it's the same alien species, (laughs) but it's the same costume. So it's a very nice callback. But Dix does this wonderful backstory for this poor insectoid creature who gets dispatched really quickly on screen, like within the first two minutes. Yeah, I you asked habitually what our favorite kind of part of the story was, and I said, I would have been perfectly content to just read a whole novel about Chris and his people. Like, <laughs> the fact that they go along and they find, like, uninhabitable planets and try and, and rehabilitate them and then live on them, and just the way that his ill usage gets repeated throughout the beginning to characterize Solon as a character. Like 
and con and condo which i'm like <laughs> that was the only thing that i'm like why is this man's name a condominium <laughs> i know that that's not the case in the uk that it's called like a flat or or something so i i kind of chalked it up to that but i just was calling him the whole time like apartment or something um <laughs> but like the way that his head gets cut off and then later you see it being thrown around and uh experimented upon and i just felt so bad and i i was so sad and i was like wow you know he Really, Dix really made me feel for this character very quickly and then uses it to kind of flesh out the other characters so smoothly. There's also a great POV change that takes place when Kondo kills Chris. It's just so smoothly accomplished. And that can be hard sometimes. Like it's when you are switching point of view from one character to another, especially when the one dies. And I realized he did it so well. And I was like, wow, Dix is Mm -hmm. such a good writer. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. agree with you. I mean, I would anyway, but this is definitely <laughs> one of the standouts <laughs> <Thanks>. there. <laughs> Poor Chris, RIP. I feel about him like I felt like the groundskeeper from the other one. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Ernie. <laughs> Ernie, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, and Dix does seem to do that a lot, doesn't he? He humanizes even the non-human characters that end up dying and that we see only briefly especially when he cares about the story now there are other times when he's like oh i can't be bothered this is not one of them yeah every character has an arc in this book um well most of them and i was so pleased by that the high priestess woman Marin gets one the whatever her name is ohika Ohika. Ohika. yeah Yeah. she gets one i don't think that morbius had an arc so much but at least i felt sympathy for him at one point Kondo has an interesting thing that i want to talk about later yeah everyone really I, i felt all these characters were so visible and fleshed out it was really a pleasure Mm-hmm. Yeah, precisely. And you would think that the Sisterhood of the Flame, that sounds like a group of drag queens, doesn't it? Uh, the Sisterhood <laughs> of the Flame would be this group of faceless women. And to some degree, they are because Marin and Ohika are the only ones that actually get any lines or speak. But they do have distinct personalities here that make them very interesting, especially Marin. This idea that this old woman has been old for possibly millennia because when they found this elixir of life that gives them eternal life, she was already old. Mm -hmm. That's a detail that um, gets hidden a little bit by the plot. When you watch the show, I have to admit, maybe it's just me being stupid because (laughs) it's probably likely that I'm stupid, but I never caught that before that she, when the doctor says you were old when this was, discovered he's saying you were an old woman when this is discovered it's not just that there's so little of the elixir that she's starting to show her age is that 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 was always her age and mm-hmm. it's kind yeah. of the reverse of claudia and the vampire chronicles by Anne rice being eternally a little girl it seems just as terrifying yeah. but for different reasons yeah hmm uh what else i was looking at sort of themes and i thought i think that there might be this very i don't know kind of vague theme of stagnation that both marin is a character that's referred to her several times as being kind of unable to break free from conventional thinking or the way she has thought maybe because of her age or this certain mindset and then also morbius as a a brain has been cooped up in this tank and they refer to, to that saying that if because of that long imprisonment, there's maybe been a kind of stagnation there as well, where he's going mad. 
And that's going to be kind of the ultimate downfall. Um, but in the case of Marin, she's able to transcend that a little bit, even though she does eventually decide to sacrifice herself, whereas Morbius strains against that or tries to use the power that he once had only to find that it's no longer, uh, which I thought was a pretty interesting thing to toy with. I think they could have done a bit more with that, but I'll, I'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're right about that theme, not just stagnation, but how immortality would lead to it, that immortality is something oh, that yeah. people dream of. Mm-hmm. The Doctor has this wonderful poetic line. It's page 94 in the print book. The impossible dream of a thousand alchemists dripping like tea from an urn. That's what it is. Yeah. And the fact that the Sisterhood have this thing that everybody wants, everybody thinks they want immortality. They come to Karn, they think they're coming to Karn to steal the elixir, actually they're probably not. And the Doctor says, yeah, but (laughs) immortality is a curse, not a blessing. In fact, that's a line that Dix himself is going to mirror in a later story. He's very interested in that concept of the Time Lords, if it is indeed his line, I think it might be, that immortality is not sought after by most Time Lords. In fact, you can tell the ones that are truly evil and corrupt by the fact that they want immortality. Mm -hmm. It's not a good thing. Time Lord society, as we found out just a few books back, uh, doesn't do very well with long life. If they had eternal life, then they'd be completely completely stagnated as it is they're in a state of stagnation to begin with but yeah it's definitely a theme that he'll return to again and again and here we've got it we've got morbius trying to achieve a form of immortality by coming back from the dead we've got solon trying to achieve some immortality by being the maker of morbius yeah you're absolutely right about that tony i completely i was sitting there scratching my head thinking about like how is this coming together? And you're right. It's the, it's the immortality aspect as well. So it is, it is coming together because that's where I was learning about the Time Lords not seeking immortality, which I didn't know about. As a, a non kind of regular in the know sort of fan, I was actually also really grateful for the way that this book just explained some things to me. Like, I, I don't know if I had just forgotten, but I was like, oh, okay, so this is why the doctor's kind of gallivanting about the universe and his relationship to other people. And I was like, oh, it's Mystery Science Theater 3000, except with Time Lords, <laughs> right? not movies. Um, exactly. That I appreciated that, that information. Dalton, what about you? What are some things that you like about this? I really enjoyed the relationship of Kondo with Solom. Kind of how, like you were saying, you, you see the growth of Kondo. You see him initially starting out being totally subservient afraid of him you know the only thing that he's more afraid of than Kondo is the sisterhood and then by the end when he sees that he's basically been strung along this whole time to get his arm back you see that fear just disappear he's basically over it Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and yeah just just seeing him kind of have a, a caring relationship towards Sarah, even though she is an outsider and she's somebody that Solon's telling the, him to to watch and be wary of. He still cares about her mm-hmm. and he still wants to make sure she's okay. Especially, he refers to her as being very brave for doing mm-hmm. what she's done. And we get what we don't get on screen, which is Kondo's inner thought process about all of that. And it's really great to have that. You do get just a feel of it 
on screen. But here you get more of it. I liked that and I got really excited because I thought, oh, maybe the reason why he suddenly is feeling empathetic towards Sarah is not only because she's being brave, but because she, like him, has a disability. She's blind now. And he is yeah. just like missing this arm. And they're kind of both in this position of, of a bit of powerlessness because of that, or at least maybe him in relation to Solon. But then later it kind of got weird and he was like, oh, her pretty hair. And Solon was like, oh, stop drooling. And I'm like, okay, that just went south. Like that was weird and gross. <laughs> I, I was really disappointed that they didn't go that other angle because I think that could have been so easily accomplished because it's, it is fitting right in with, as, as you're talking about the, his admiring her being brave, like, they could have just very easily put a line in there about you can't see, but you still help friend. Like it could have just <laughs> been very easily done. And that too would have given Sarah the opportunity to be even more close with him for that moment. And it would have made his death seem more sad, which I feel like they actually really glossed over both of their deaths. I was sort of disappointed by that. Yeah. It was just like, oh, they're dead and they move yeah. no more. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Though they do have Sarah reacting to Kondo's death a bit more on they the page. They did, but it's like telling. It's not showing. It's like, oh, Sarah was sad. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true, true. And Solon's death, you're right, comes really quickly, but then it kind of does on screen, too. Uh, and it's one of those rare moments when the doctor straight up kills somebody. If it weren't for that cyanide cast that he creates, then... Yeah. Yeah, Solon would probably still be alive, but that's how much of a threat Morbius actually is, or at least that's the way I think of it anyway, because otherwise, oof. Well, wait a minute. He, oh yeah, that's right. I thought he got bear hugged to death first. I was like, oh, he died there. And then, no, he had a, an encore and then he came back and then he was gassed. And I was like, well, that sucks. <clears throat> right, right. You're right. Because, because of the weirdness of the brain case that Morbius has been put in. That's what you're seeing on the cover of the book, by the way. Uh -huh. He goes crazy and kills one of the sisterhood, and then they bring him back, and he manages to fix him. But after locking the Doctor and Sarah in, and that's when the Doctor gasses him. Oh. Which I actually also thought was a pretty badass part, when the sisterhood apparently surrounds Morbius with fire and just make him jump off a cliff. For yeah. some reason, I could see that very clearly, and I was yeah. like, oh, that's kind of <laughs> hardcore. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, who, who decided that these were books for children? <laughs> like, I, I don't think I've ever read a single one of these that I would have thought was for children, with maybe the exception of the one that was supposed to be set in the Crusades. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, these are all so violent. and. Yeah fire and molotov cocktails and guns and very scary things I, I don't know that's sort of a fool's errand i i shudder to think of what that second more child-friendly version of this was like what what was it yeah. like oh dr morbius got booped on the head and he went to sleep <laughs> like what what on earth would you write yeah without completely bastardizing this story well it could very well be close to a version of the novelization of that edited version. <laughs> I, I I know that his novelization came out first, obviously, but yeah, there there's some stuff that cuts close to the bone in Giant Robot as well, and yet he adapted that, and it's kind of odd and telling that he would choose to adapt two of the more violent scripts. Then again, he did adapt his own scripts, so that makes some sense. I don't think he would do that to anybody else's. 
Yeah, it, I I hate ever to agree with Mary Whitehouse. <laughs> And I definitely <laughs> don't want to agree with the BBC censors who just chop the story to bits. But yeah, it is violent. However, it's the level of violence that kids of a particular age, meaning my age, would have encountered anyway, especially in this country, on Saturday mornings, because that's when horror movies used to play on... Um, Saturday afternoons, you would get horror movies from the 50s and 60s, and sometimes the recent, more recently in the 70s, and they would be this violent. So it's not necessarily anything that, you know, kids can't handle necessarily. Very young children can't handle it, I'm sure, but yeah. Well, that's what I'm wondering when they say kids, like who's kids? Because I'm like, well, okay, if you're like a 10 or 12 year old reading this, I don't think that that's so bad. But maybe like a, a little kid, like five, six, seven-year-old, this could just be a little bit overwhelming for them. Oh, um, yeah. So it depends yeah. on who who is Mary angry about. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like, too, though, the, the type of violence that's being described here is is not as graphic as some of the other books that we've read. Yeah. I mean, someone being, someone being gassed <laughs> is not that graphic. Someone falling off a cliff is yeah. not that graphic. It can be... It can be shown without showing it. Mm-hmm. Whereas we've had other books where people are literally being smashed to death or being shot. But I'm thinking about the the lion's share of the violence happening here is things that it's not anything worse than you would see a superhero doing when they're fighting. True. There's not tons of blood and guts and gore, but maybe I'm one of these desensitized people. <laughs> the, I was I was the kid that was watching Power Rangers and and you know not thinking anything of violence. No, I think I agree. I if. I were to think about something that was violent, I actually would think more of the the next book that's coming down the pike for us. I I don't know, maybe when people are being lit on fire, like it's just kind of scary. Uh, <laughs> but like, yeah. like maybe more the fear of certain scenes um, could could seem scary. But yeah, I didn't, I, I wasn't reading this thinking, oh my goodness, like this is so violent. I, uh, you're right, I didn't have that reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, but maybe it is about the putting the idea in the head and, and kind of the next steps that would cause a kid to have yeah. nightmares. <laughs> yeah, but I, I still haven't, and probably some of our listeners will let me know if they have, I've never heard of anybody watching the story and just being traumatized <laughs> by it. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Now, granted, when Kondo gets shot on screen, they do use a squib, huh. which is unusual for Doctor Who. So you do get a burst of blood. Wow, really? Huh. Yeah, you really do. Mm. And that, yeah, that's that's hitting a little close to the bone for doc, even for Doctor Who. But yeah, it's still the sort of violence that a kid growing up in the 70s, even in Britain, probably would have seen somewhere. If you were in Australia, probably not, because they chopped and butchered everything to keep that level of violence out of television. But not so much here and not so much in the UK. Hmm. Um, we do get to see someone playing with the head <laughs> in a children's show. Yeah, there is that. He like kicks it across the floor or something. I was like, oh my god! Well, he also hooks it up to this thing <laughs> and causes the mandibles to click. Yeah. And if you're thinking of it in terms of, oh my god, that's an alien head, then it's pretty off-putting. If you're thinking of it instead of, oh, here's a prop in a children's show, and he's manipulating the mandibles to yeah. click back and forth, it's a very different thing. But yeah. Yeah, there are... In fact, some of the stuff that has come from this book 
uh, from the story, rather, is much more horrifying than the story itself. There's a mention in Chapter 2. Uh, Marin says, even the silent gas dirigibles of the Muthai I felt in my bones while they were still a million miles distant. Which is, because of the Doctor Who Extended Universe, it's one of those lines that has lent itself to one of the most horrific original novels of the 90s. They're called the Huthai on screen, and the Huthai will show up in one of the new adventures, and they are terrifying. But then most of the new adventures aren't meant to be read. Well, all of the new adventures aren't meant to be read by kids anyway. So that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. What else? What did we think, for example, of all of the information that we get about the Time Lords and Morbius and things we had not heard before? I will admit, since I have have been a bad boy and I watched The Five Doctors... (laughs) I kept confusing Mobius or Morbius with Rassilon. I had to I had to go uh-huh. back and be like, wait, no, this is not that bad time lord. It's a different bad time lord. <laughs> that was uh, uh, my my confusion on my part. I thought it was kind of interesting to uh, have us be introduced to another renegade time lord. Yeah. That is kind of along the likes of the master with without us having uh, a story with the master in it. Um, someone someone mm-hmm. that could be seen kind of on that level. It was interesting to hear about the history of the Time Lords working with the Sisterhood to bring him down. And then even even the Time Lords themselves using some of the elixir or, or knowing about the elixir. I don't know if it's necessarily said that they've used it. Mm-hmm. They've used it if they have injuries that somehow they can't heal themselves. Yeah. So n- not to the extent that the that the sisterhood is using it, but yeah, I, th- I think it's it's really neat to kind of expand on that that mythology further than anything that we've really read. Mm-hmm. May- maybe with the exception of Scratchman, I feel like there was there were some things in Scratchman that uh, that built upon that, but that is written a year and a half ago, two years ago. So, Right. And what you're seeing there in Scratchman is the end result of a writer like Robert Holmes looking at the Time Lords and thinking, you know, what is their history? What are they like? What's going on there? And very soon, in fact, we're going to get another Robert Holmes story that is going to directly address the Time Lords. And it's in my, to my mind, it's absolutely brilliant. But this is kind of setting up the idea that the Time Lords don't like to get their hands dirty, but they're constantly interfering, despite having a non-interference doctrine. And yes, they have had former Time Lords who have gone well beyond all of the Master's machinations and have tried to raise an army to take over, I think they even said the universe, uh-huh. So, yeah, the the Time Lords, when they go bad, they go really, really, really bad. So we should be very lucky that we have the Doctor, (laughs) you know, cleaving to the side of justice for most of the time. Yeah, Yeah, I also was appreciative of this extra information because I didn't know very much about it. And most of these books are somewhat episodic, just like, here's the thing that happens. And they don't necessarily mention any of the larger narrative frame. And I like the way that this narrative revealed it too, because at first, it's just like, okay, we crashed on this planet. And then Doctor Who is kind of cursing the Time Lord. So you're like, okay, they're here. And 
Then we go over to Solon, who eventually we reveal, oh, okay, this Morbius that he's got is also a Time Lord. Okay, so there's that connection. And then we go over to the Sisterhood, and it's like, ah, okay, the Elixir, and they're worried about a Time Lord getting it. Okay, now everything is connected. Mm-hmm. And that was all revealed gradually. So at first, I'm kind of like, okay, is this going to be another one of these things where there's all these random disparate kind of plot things happening? But in this case, they actually all added up, which I really appreciated. Yeah, Jenny, when you brought up how the information was revealed to us, it's interesting that we get one of those as-you-know moments. (laughs) You know that an info dump is coming when someone says, as you very well know, (laughs) and you know that the person that they're saying this to is not actually being reminded, it's completely for us. They're actually handled pretty well in this story, and they're handled pretty well in the book. Even down to things like, I've told you before, Kondo, you'll get your arm back when our task here is finished and not before. So it's like, okay, (laughs) now we know what that's about. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be elegant. I'm not expecting this to be the, Mm -hmm. you know, next great American novel. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like, I'm I'm glad I know about that now, though. Thanks, Dix. (laughs) Yeah, but it's very tightly plotted. And that's something that's nice to have in a Doctor Who story, because we have had previous Doctor Who stories that were not quite so well plotted. Oh, Lord. Um, oh, God. Yeah. Are, are you going to let me be on the next one? <laughs> I I would appreciate it if you joined us. Yes, Eric Goldbranson, who I don't think you've ever met. You haven't met him. It's going to be with us on that one, but we can make it a four-person panel. Absolutely. <sighs> I promise I'll try and be quiet, except it's going to be really hard because I have many (laughs) things to say about the plot of this next one. That is fine. That is perfectly fine. I am perfectly (laughs) on board with that. I was like, wow, I could not think of two more polar opposite stories for for me to have read. This one, as you said, is is so tightly and considerately written. I could just feel the, the care of the writer in it. And then the next one, I'm like, what? What in God's name happened to this? <laughs> um, <laughs> stay tuned, listeners. <laughs> and yet the strange thing is that for me, longtime fan, this one and the next one are among my favorite stories. Really? Wow. Yeah. This season is, well, the whole season really is fantastic because it starts with Terror of the Zygons, which is Loch Ness Monster. Then we get Planet of Evil which is amazing. Then we get Pyramids of Mars, which is even more amazing. Then we get Android Invasion. And then we get this. And then we finish with Seeds of Doom. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, just even with that one kind of tepid little story, which has its fans, like Danny Horn, for instance, it is just an amazing season. But that's if you're watching it televisually. Having pre-read the next book, I I get what you mean, though, because that's a different novelist (laughs) going at very different material and not doing it quite (laughs) as well. But as you said, stay tuned. (laughs) Oh, there's the cat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's the cat. Yep. I was going to say, I'll keep this in mind. Okay, get ready. Prepare to read that. Yeah, we're trying not to ruin it for yeah, you, but no. you, well, come to think of it, Dalton has already read a novelization by Philip Hinchcliffe before. So he he knows the level mm-hmm. of prose that we are going to be looking at. <laughs> so, and he knows how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah. But I'm also able to 
to have my own opinions, so I I, I don't no, I don't no, usually no, let those no, no, no. Uh, excellent cloud, cloud my judgment. The Too other much. thing that you get so. <laughs> that's so good in this book is you have two writers, Robert Holmes and Terrence Sticks, who are both very much in love with language and are playing off each other in this beautiful way. At the beginning of chapter four, for instance, all of uh, Solon's yeah. insults, <laughs> you chicken brain biological disaster, and calling mm-hmm. the sisterhood the squalid brood of harpies yes. and palsied harridan. I had to look up harridan. I was like, that is a new word for me. I love that word. Uh, I adore that word. And I learned it from Doctor Who. I learned yeah. it from the story. Robert <laughs> Holmes it generally does those sorts of things. Terrence Sticks will throw them in occasionally, but he's he definitely will preserve them whenever he sees them in a script by Robert Holmes. And it's brilliant that he does. That being said, he also likes to... Um, <laughs> play into my sensibilities because in that same chapter we see the sisters gathering a huge bunch of faggots <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah i yeah, sorry oh. I, I i i love it when <laughs> that usage of the word comes up and i can say <laughs> yeah oh, the my. doctor's dialogue in this book was really fire <laughs> i mean sometimes like he says these puns and i'm like ha ha like it's supposed to be funny and it's not and this time i was like no this is really funny in that same chapter when he's like well i life begins at 750 years old and (laughs) later i don't know he just says so many funny things um (laughs) that like when they're talking about why the flame isn't as strong as it could be and and marin is like well that's beyond the the comprehension of minds and he's like oh i think it's just beyond the reach of a decent spectrograph like just there's so (laughs) many chimney sweep (laughs) yeah so many lines that i i thought were really quite funny yes and pop a catapetal (laughs) i love that moment (laughs) yes tom baker himself loves to do stuff with words like that (laughs) and names and uh, is just a brilliant moment otherwise I had to go and look up and see if if it was something that we had experienced within the show before. <laughs> I was oh, like, really? <laughs> well, I mean, we've had him reference things, historical points with the without Mary Celeste. Well, exactly. So we've we've had him mention things without it actually being a, a huge plot point in the story. So I wanted to know if it was something he had brought up before, but no, it was the first time. So uh, you know. Yeah, and somehow he expects Marin to know about it. Exactly, <laughs> which is hilarious. Well, she's old too. I, do. I don't know. Right, I bought well, it. It could be. <laughs> and there are a few additions by Dix too, because I do not remember the Doctor saying about the singing of the Sisterhood that he didn't think much of the singing either. What you need is a really good contralto. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is just much better. Much better on the page. So there are things that are good on screen that Dix improves for once, which is just astonishing. And there are things that he just completely translates to the page because they're already good. And that's just marvelous. Yeah, it's like every everything that everybody does in this book makes sense. And sometimes in these books, there's a lot of just, oh, someone got lost and wandered down this corridor. And all of a sudden, ah, they were attacked or they stumbled upon this thing. And, you know, it's like these contrivances. And in this book, everyone had a reason that was particularly character and motivation driven for for whatever they wanted to have happen. You know, as soon as we get to the planet, the sisters are like, oh, this Time Lord is here to steal my elixir. And, and we know that that's not the case. But then we're like, well, wait a minute. Is, is that the case? Like, is that 
what the Time Lords have asked the Doctor to do. And then later on, when Sarah gets blinded and the Doctor's like, oh, shit, I need some of that elixir. I was like, oh, no, like, here he is. He's going to now really be trying to get some elixir, although we we know as the reader that he's not really trying to steal it. But we see how that's then fulfilling something that was introduced to us in the plot and is what those sisters fear. And then we worry about it. And all of that was Mm -hmm. just so nicely handled. Everything seemed natural. It seemed expected. Um, and not little artifices set to move the plot forward. Yeah. Well, there is a little problem there, though. And it becomes a little more apparent on the page, because in the performance, you can see that the Doctor is so concerned that he puts aside his suspicions about Solon and actually goes back to the sisterhood. But in Chapter 6, if even reading it here, it feels like the Doctor's kind of gotten hold of the idiot ball for a second. Because he not only knows that Solon is lying, because he's seen through his charade before, he is willing to leave Sarah there when it would actually make more sense, despite the dangers, to take her with him to make sure the elixir works. I guess that's true. (laughs) The problem is, if we don't leave Sarah behind, we don't get the big end of episode reveal where we can see what she doesn't, Mm -hmm. which is that brain in the tank, which is just brilliant well and see that's the thing like you say that and i'm like oh yeah that would make perfect sense but i didn't even care because i'm so willing to go along with this story that's i think the mark of of the writing that i'm willing to overlook something that is kind of a whole um just because i'm i'm so pleased with the way things are going (laughs) yeah it's not even really a whole necessarily, though you notice that Dix does do a little bit to paper it over when he later has the doctor say, yeah, I was suspicious of that. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's aware that that is something that could be criticized. There's that great moment where he's with the sisters and he was like, oh, he knew it would be pointless to try and and make you know Marin decide to spare his life. So he just had to wait and see what she would do. And then we get a break and then we go over to Sarah's narrative and that's when we see the coffin arriving at the house. And so you as the reader have to think, oh, no, did did he die? Did the sisters kill him? But you kind of get a hint that maybe it's a trap that they set up. And then, of course, it is. And but just the fact that we don't get to know that, um, that Dix wisely said, oh, I'm going to set this up so it will be ambiguous and create a little bit of tension for the reader and for our characters is just such a smart move. Yeah, it's also like that on screen. Ah. So that's originally how it's set up. But there are a few moments that Dix also creates that you don't really see on screen, but also do that same thing. In Chapter 2, for instance, uh, the line, Scarlet drapes on all four sides turned it into a kind of tent. Solon paused for a moment and gazed yearningly at the four-poster. And you think, if you don't know the story... If you read that line, you think he's exhausted. Uh. He's looking at the bed because he's yearning just to go to sleep. No, it's because that hideous, horrible body that he's created (laughs) for Morbius is there. And it's lovely how that is set up so you don't think, oh, well, what is going on? Or if you completely ignore the title of the book... (laughs) And I should probably ask both of you what you thought the title of the book was going to refer to. You don't realize until you get there what that disembodied voice is and that it literally is disembodied. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a nice reveal for that. What else? There's the bit uh, you were talking about chapter the beginning of the book with Solon being described as carving a bust and he's made it 
a hundred times before and it's always the same face. That, that just created this idea of how feverishly mad he was to have a head for this body. And, and kind of in his own way, his own kind of descent into madness, the fact that he would carve a head that many times. And it's always mm-hmm. the same. Yeah. Just from the beginning, you kind of get that weird feeling about him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Even, exactly. be, even before you know about the body and his manipulation of Kondo, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Solon's an interesting guy. I actually do like the scene where he's, he's doing the surgery and Sarah remarks on his skill that we get to me as a reader, like an objective sense of, oh, wait, this guy isn't just crazy. He actually is really good at what he's doing. And mm-hmm. the thing that he's mm-hmm. doing is an achievement. It's a fucked up achievement, but it's like incredible. And that gave me even a little bit of respect for him as a character in that moment that I kind of felt glad for him. I, I was like, oh, I appreciate getting to see this aspect of this character. And also getting to see more of the darker side of him, because in Chapter 3, Dix lets us into Sarah's head as she's thinking about him. Solon didn't really own this place. He'd simply moved in here, like living like a rat in the ruins. And there was something curiously rat-like about him, come to think of it, a plump, well-fed rat, sleek and bright-eyed. Feeling rather guilty of having such unkind thoughts about her host, Sarah thought she'd better join in the conversation. <laughs> and it's interesting because the actor who plays him on screen, Philip Maddock, is very much not rat-like at all. <laughs> <laughs> but the performance is. And it is very good of Dix to have kept that in mind and thought, yeah, this guy doesn't inspire trust, (laughs) but he is good at what he does. Unfortunately, what he does, he's turned to pretty horrific stuff. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Completely shut it down again why, why don't you no i feel like it's you know the conversation flows more when we have things to say we don't like and <laughs> there's just <laughs> not that much to criticize about this it was interesting and i appreciate you reading your your notes which i i always let you read them i don't usually look at them ahead of time because i just like to hear you say them <laughs> that you know to understand kind of how these stories come to be and i do sometimes feel that there's always like all these different kind of tropes being smashed together. Like at first I was getting this Dune Mm -hmm. Bene Gesserit vibe from the sisterhood. And then I was of course getting Frankenstein. And then I was kind of getting like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde vibe where when Morbius can be very, um, for for the moments that his brain was connected, that he was acting, you know, pretty normal and powerful and um, sadistic, but then turning into a monster when the brain wasn't functioning properly. And I always do wish it could come together a little bit more or that they could just settle on like one fucking thing and just do that and not have (laughs) to like do all the things. But, you know, it it was not so bad. And I, I like Dune. So I was happy to see this sisterhood. Sometimes these stories are pretty empty of of characters that are not just like hetero dudes. So I mm-hmm. was happy to see this group of 
badass telekinetic women, you know, doing shit, like teleporting the the TARDIS into their cave and the doctor. I was like, well, that's a neat trick. Uh-huh. <laughs> Made me wonder why they couldn't do that a little bit more. But I, I guess that the flame was dying and their powers were going and, and whatever. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, I feel like we've already talked about any of the, the, the things that I felt a little disappointed with, which maybe were Kondo and Solon's deaths and Kondo's treatment of Sarah there a little bit. Well, I have a few, but I don't want to get to them just yet. <laughs> uh, as far as the sisterhood goes, they have come back in the new series hmm. a couple of times, which is really awesome. In fact, it's not Ohika that returns. I I actually had to look this up and I realized it's not Ohika. It's a similarly named character named Ohila, who is the one who heads up the sisterhood. She's the one that gives the elixir to the eighth doctor to turn him into the war doctor. Slip of the tongue there. She doesn't give him the elixir. She instead gives him a different potion, which we find out the actual composition of in the novelization of a later story. And she is the one that the twelfth doctor encounters when he goes, strangely enough, back to Gallifrey. Yeah, so this is something that is going to be a very strong moment for Doctor Who lore. And the fact that both of you clued in on that and said there's something special about this story, it's it's not terribly surprising. It's It really is just that good. There are some things that are not as good. <laughs> <laughs> I think they have all to do with dicks. Which is not something that I often say, but there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry, that was a very bad joke. I'll probably cut it out. Never! (laughs) Don't do it. Well, you know. The doctor regularly refers to the sisters as my dear young ladies. I noticed that. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't do that on screen. Or if he does, I don't remember him doing it on screen. Whereas Dix has the doctor do this whenever he meets any younger woman, which is to say all women, because they're all younger than he is, except for the the sisterhood. They're probably older than he is. So it's like, why is that there? That and he got rid of one of my favorite jokes. (laughs) When... Solon tells Morbius that the Doctor is a Time Lord. What do you mean, Time Lord? The Doctor. The Doctor is a Time Lord? That is why his head is so perfect. From one of your own race. From one of those who turned upon you and tried to destroy you. You get a new head for Morbius. The crowning irony. I'm sorry, the pun was irresistible. You fool, Solon! (laughs) (laughs) I love that moment, and it's gone from the book, and I can understand why, but there are some new ones, some great lovely moments, like, now get your hook under that edge and lift. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Was there anything that you found yourself not liking as much or outright disliking? I feel like if anything, the end, <laughs> as okay. always, was very short and truncated. The The fact that we spend the whole novel talking about the powers of Morbius and how even when he was just a brain, 
the doctor could sense him and he was afraid of him. And then the brain battle itself is very short. Not, not a whole lot happens within that. And then, yeah, he, he gets yeah. thrown off a cliff. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that Dix isn't spending much time on that brain battle because of the controversial edition, because the line in the book actually says Sarah had a confused impression of even more faces on the screen. And that's it. Mm-hmm. He, he covers it up as quickly as he can so as not to say, oh, these are former faces of the Doctor. He does have her recognize the third Doctor's face. Oh, and there's that lovely exchange at the very beginning when Solon says, what a magnificent head. Yes. And the Doctor says, uh, I'm glad you like it. I've had several. I used to have an old gray model before this one. Some people liked it. And Sarah actually says, well, <laughs> I was very fond of it. Yeah. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> and that's Liz Sladen's ad lib, if I remember correctly. And it's a nice little touch there just to remind you that these characters have history with each other. Yeah, that, that ending is pretty fast. And something that I take particular issue with. How exactly does Marin sacrifice herself? Did you guys get it? Yeah, I guess you're right. I, I didn't question it. I was like, oh, she's uh, she threw herself into some fire and then she was young for a second because I guess she did the right thing. So when you do the right thing, you get to be young because to be young <laughs> is good and we live in an <laughs> age of society. Okay. Like I, <laughs> I just didn't really engage that much. That's what happens on screen. Oh. But the way it's done on screen is you see the actress's face superimposed on the fire and then a younger actress superimposed before it fades out. But it still leaves the question that this flame is in kind of a little crevice in the rock behind yeah. this kind of shield type thing. How the fuck did she get in there? <laughs> <laughs> did she climb her old body up in there and stuff herself in there like some poor comic book character stuffed into an oven <laughs> and then burst into flame because she was so old that she was just <laughs> very dry, dry kindling old yes. kindling just dry sticks and bones <laughs> yes i've never and i was hoping that Dix would actually do something with it and no but that's fine. Well, and we have that trope, right? Because we know um, what this... And I, he did describe it well in here. I can't remember where it was, but he described it quite well, how they're saying, oh, you know, if any of these people who are dependent on the elixir stop taking it, they age very quickly and totally fall into dust. And we, <laughs> anybody who's consumed pop culture, at least in North America, and I don't know, maybe maybe the world over, has that image because we see that in um, one of the Indiana Jones movies, very famously, right? Oh, yeah. That scene where that person just fucking dissolves and it's very disturbing. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what happens when you stop drinking the elixir. Indiana Jones <laughs> happens. I don't know. I, I wondered maybe this is a, a magic fire and the moment that anybody in this sort of mystical frame of, of space just touches it, maybe they kindly dissolve like a sparkling Edward vampire. I don't know. Like I <laughs> didn't assume that it needed to be literal, like physical combustion. Because right. we do have some precedent for magic in this story that there's the fire ring and the, the the blinding ring and then the of course telekinetic like transportation thing so i i was like well okay i, I can i can buy that there's just a lot of things <laughs> that i don't question tony just put it that way <laughs> <laughs> no, i get it i get it it's it's a little easier i guess for me because i have such 
a vivid image of the story in my head so that when I read the story on the page, I'm like, oh, that makes more sense now. Oh, wait, that hasn't been explained at all. Oh, that's been taken out. But yeah, it's good to see that even from other perspectives, it's it's well done enough that you just don't question it, which is what a good Doctor Who story should do, because if you start questioning, boy, howdy, you'd never stop with some of them. I've also just yeah. become accustomed to the quick endings. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like Greece. They jump into the TARDIS. They go into the sky, chitty, chitty, bang, bang style. There's like, you're the one that I want. It's playing in the background and they're just gone. I'm like, I buy it. It's fine. I've just grown accustomed to that. Well, at least the TARDIS didn't explode as it does on screen what? in that last scene. Yeah, they don't dematerialize it. They just, it explodes for some reason. <laughs> Okay. I've never understood it. I, I'm sure they talk about it on the DVD. It's but the end. I... It's the end of the season. It's all serious. They're dead now. Bye. <laughs> exactly. Anything else we'd like to say about this one? Looking through my notes, I think we've talked about everything. So, shall we go to Goodreads? Yeah, I think I'm mm-hmm. I'm good. Uh, all right. The first thing I wrote on my notes about the cover was, maybe this will be the scariest thing about this book, since it has like that a Nigel Thornberry sort of look to it. But... Oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> um and it wasn't was it (laughs) no it it wasn't actually i was really favorably impressed so as we always do let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings by the way if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it simply read the book write a review or comment in our goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it here before discussing the book ourselves you may just get your review read out loud here the average rating for this book on goodreads out of five stars is 3.67 really which is fairly impressive yeah oh you mean you think it's low yeah yeah well it's it's pretty high for the range of books that we get on this show but yeah you're right that if you're impressed by this book then maybe 3.67 out of 5 still seems low The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives a very short review of three stars, saying a good read, fairly faithful to the TV show, wish that Uncle Terrence had made more of the brain battle. I have the junior copy as well, and it's simplistic fun. (laughs) I'm sure it is. Mm -hmm. Our Patreon Dave Davis also gives it three stars and says Dix could have been forgiven when he came to novelize the story for changing it back, even if only a little. What we get instead is pretty much what we see on screen. There's even an ad lib from Elizabeth Sladen that makes it to the page. When Solon is admiring the Doctor's head, the Doctor remarks he's had several, including an old grey model that some people liked, to which Sarah adds that she did. The Doctor's quipped to Kondo when he's standing in the pouring rain and asks for a glass of water. May have been ad-libbed too, as in the DVD commentary, Elizabeth Sladen recalled Tom Baker warning Colin Fay, who played Kondo, about the line so he wouldn't corpse. <laughs> There's a big plot hole as a result of Holmes' changes. In Dick's original script, a slightly dim robot was responsible for making the patchwork body for Morbius. Someone, on the other hand, is supposed to be a brilliant surgeon. He should realize that scooping out the doctor's brain and putting that of Morbius in, instead, was a much simpler operation than attaching the head to that grotesque body, with only one possible instance of tissue rejection to deal with. But he remains fixated on the piecemeal approach. Yeah, literally. (laughs) One change that I found a little disappointing at first, but which makes perfect sense on reflection, is in the prologue. On screen, we see a mutt. 
from the Pertwee story, The Mutants, but on the page, it's a completely new species. To be fair, it would have been a very difficult to shoehorn in a backstory for the Mutt, which was only there because there was a costume lying around, and it was cheaper than making something new, and it was worth losing a bit of nostalgia to get a Terrence Dix prologue. The Morbius Doctors are retained, albeit they are skated over with even more alacrity than in the televised version. Dix could easily have removed them altogether, and would have been justified, as the premise of pre-Hartnell Doctors had already been contradicted on screen by the time the book was published. It's probably just as well he didn't, now they've retained their canonicity in the new series. And unless I missed it, not only does Sarah not faint, she doesn't even lose consciousness, unlike the Doctor. <laughs> and finally, Janetta Christie gives it the full five stars and says, Fun read for all sci-fi and Doctor Who fans. This book is a must-read backstory for the online and on-DVD mini-episode, The Night of the Doctor, that led up to the 50th anniversary TV episode, The Day of the Doctor. It explains his attitude upon finding himself on the planet Karn and why he had trouble trusting the sisters at first. All right, so, Dalton, out of five <laughs> stars, what would you give this book? Um, I'd say 4.25. More wow. than a four, but not not any higher. Okay. It was just, uh, yeah, it was just really enjoyable um, from beginning to end. Even if there are some small things that maybe annoyed me about it overall, pretty strong book. Uh, a lot of good character moments for Sarah and the Doctor and the, the new characters introduced here. So, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. I liked hearing about some history of the Time Lords that we hadn't heard before. Um, a lot of good atmospherics. So, yeah, 4.25. Okay. And Jenny? Yeah, I really appreciate our discussion of the immortality aspect of stagnation because that totally brought together the themes and I think fixed for me my major qualm with this was which was that I wasn't sure that all the themes and pieces were kind of coming together so I'm like Dalton I only I have like a few quibbles that would prevent me from being five out of five on this so I will will go four and a half because decimals frighten me four and a half uh, out of five stars <laughs> okay and as for me, I'd have to say, yeah, I was not expecting this book to be as good as it was, even though the story itself is one of my favorites. I honestly thought it might be a script-to-page sort of thing. Oddly enough, it is a script-to-page sort of thing. But there's just enough new stuff that Terrence Sticks adds that's really good, even though the, you know, young ladies thing I could do without. And when you have an original script as good as this was and is, then that script to page isn't nearly as onerous. I mean, we've had books and we will have books where Terrence Dix just looks at it and says, eh, and doesn't do that much to it. This one, he actually is putting some thought into. This one, he is trying to bring out all the joy of language that Robert Holmes has in rewriting his own script. So, yeah, I'd have to go along with Dalton on this one, even though I'm inclined to agree with Jenny on this one. <laughs> and I'll say 4.25 for this one out of five stars. All right. 
I like too when other people pick up like casual misogyny and I'm just like, oh yeah, that's just the way things are. Like <laughs> I just don't even care. I'm like, oh, whatever. That's fine. It was the seventies or something. Um, thank you for, for calling that out. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's, it's part and parcel of Dix's book. So I'm always going to call that out. <laughs> so thank you all. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we finish out Tom Baker's second season, when we discuss Philip Pinchcliffe's novelization of The Seeds of Doom, featuring our special guest, the host of the Video Junkyard podcast and the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast, Eric O'Branson. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Please stop spamming me with porn. I don't need it. Wow. <laughs> Yes. For some reason, ever since I started putting my email in this outgoing narration, my Google Drive is just a wash with porn. <laughs> so it's like, lovely. A Thank wash of porn. Great, great verb there. It is St. Valentine's Day after all. So if you can't love somebody else, love yourself. Love yourself. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. <laughs> See ya.